If uh, you look on the screen, there's a picture here, Jesus is coming. Look busy. Uh, if you've seen this, t-shirts or bumper stickers, um, you might have seen this before. Um, this is not what we're talking about this Advent. Um, we are talking about taking a pause, actually, to maybe slow down on the busyness a little bit. Not look busy. We maybe, we maybe want to get rid of that. If we can, <laughs> otherwise that'll be distracting for the rest of the message. <laughs> Jesus says, beware, keep alert, keep awake. And this reading that we have from the Gospel of Mark is uh, Jesus talking about really the end times. He's talking about himself in the third person. He calls himself the Son of Man will come with the clouds, and there'll be a gathering of all his people together. And there's all kinds of speculation about what this all might mean. Um, but in my mind, there's, there's kind of two extremes to trying to understand what it is that Jesus is pointing to, this, this idea of him returning, the second coming of Jesus. The first extreme is that we might look around in the world looking at signs that might be taking place and we will determine or try to determine that he must be coming back very soon and we might even go so far as to try to fix a date for it, right? There's all kinds of groups that have tried to fix the date of Jesus' return. And along with this view tends to come a, a pretty literal interpretation of, say, the book of Revelation or Mark 13. If you read the first part of Mark 13, uh, it's, uh, scholars sometimes call it the little apocalypse because you've got the big apocalypse in all of Revelation, but Jesus uh, talks more specifically in Mark 13 about the end. And this one extreme view will try to, to piece together what it is that we think the Bible might be saying about the future, particularly the end times. This extreme started to come to prominence after someone named John Nelson Darby uh, put out a whole bunch of his thoughts about things which led to a, 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 a movement within Christianity called dispensationalism big fancy word, um, and that was around the 1830s. So prior to the 1830s, this way of looking at Revelation and trying to predict the, you know, the signs of the times was not particularly widespread. It was a very fringe thing within Christianity. But that's kind of one extreme of, of where we can go with this kind of stuff. It's trying to figure out, okay, what exactly is going to happen? And there's a lot of speculation um, and even kind of turning it into entertainment, right? So there's a movie out with Nicolas Cage now. Um, there's all kinds of books, the Left Behind series. Um, so all of that stuff, kind of turning those end times predictions into entertainment is, I would say, one extreme. The other extreme is to say, well, come on, it's been 2,000 years already. Like, he said he was coming back. Clearly that's not happening. He's not returning. And so that must mean that the mentions of his return in the Bible must be just symbolic. Or, you know, it, I guess there's a chance. So if he is returning, it actually doesn't really matter. That's, I think, the other extreme. I, 
probably most of us are somewhere in between those, rather than a one and the other. What I think, and I'm not telling you what you should think, but what I think is that Jesus really is coming again, and it, it will be the end of life as we know it, but it's also going to be the beginning of life better than we know it. And I think Jesus' return, for all of the doomsday prophecies, I think Jesus' return is supposed to be about a comfort to us who believe. In the biblical texts that talk about Jesus' second coming are almost always directed towards Christians that are undergoing persecution at the time. The book of Revelation was written to seven churches who were undergoing intense persecution. And if you look at Mark 13 at the beginning, Jesus is talking about how you will be killed because of your faith in me. You'll be arrested. And he's talking to people who are going to go through persecution. And his assurance of him coming again is to say, well, I'm going to come and I'm going to fix all of that. There won't be that persecution anymore. So these texts, they play a kind of pastoral function for people who are in very difficult circumstances. The encouragement that these texts bring is to stay true to Jesus in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because in the end, Jesus is coming to set things right. And most of those things, for people who are under intense persecution, most of those things are out of their control. They don't have control over whether the government is persecuting Christians for their faith. They just try to stay faithful. And so this text about the Son of Man coming to set things right and gather his people together, it is good news. But for us, it, these texts can be problematic. Because we're not suffering terribly. I mean, we think sometimes Canadians will, Canadian Christians will complain about how we're suffering for our faith, and we're really not. I mean, we're really, really not. We're not suffering terribly. And so it can be hard to see the hope in the return of Christ. Because our lives are actually pretty good. And so I think we're actually more likely then, in, say, North American culture, we're more likely to go to one of the extremes, you see. Because we'll either turn the end times into entertainment or sort of intellectual games about, well, I wonder what if this could happen or I wonder if that could happen. <coughs> we have time for that kind of stuff. If we're suffering intensely because of persecution, I'm not interested in intellectual games. Or we go to the other extreme. It doesn't matter, or it, does, it isn't real. Because we don't need it to be real. And I think this t-shirt kind of illustrates it. Look, busy. That's kind of our culture's answer to anything that we don't want to face. And a lot of us, if Jesus really did return, I think a lot of us would worry about that. A lot of us would worry about actually facing Jesus. The possibility of the return of Jesus, it actually ought to confront us with the reality of our spiritual lives, which is why most of us would probably rather look busy. The possibility of the return of Jesus, it ought to confront us with whether we are giving proper attention to our relationship with God in Christ. 
rather than speculating about the end times, about what might happen, a better speculation is what would we do if we were really faced with the risen Christ, if we came face to face with him. And I think this might be what Jesus is actually driving at in Mark 13, more than trying to give you some sort of complete picture of what's going to happen. Because his command at the end is essentially keep awake, keep alert. And he tells a, a short parable to illustrate what he's talking about. He says in verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home, uh, he puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Because you don't know when the master is going to come back. So be ready. Be on the watch for now, I think that the key in this text that we kind of just gloss over, because we're worrying about, well, what am I supposed to be watching for? The key in this little text is just a short little phrase. And it's this, each with his work. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his slaves in charge, each with his work. We forget about that because we're worrying about, well, what's going to happen? But the whole thrust of Mark 13 is that we're actually supposed to be doing things before the end. Lamar Williamson Jr. wrote a commentary on Mark. It's in the Interpretation series. And he tells a little story uh, which, which he calls sort of the uh, pragmatic approach to uh, sort of the end times, or our view of kind of Jesus returning. And it's about, uh, it's, a, it's a real story about something that happened in colonial New England in the legislature. And there was an eclipse that happened, and so they thought, oh, you know, that's, that's the sun going black, and like the moon and the stars and all those signs. And what happened was that the, the pe some of the people in the legislature started to panic, and they made motions to adjourn, like, let's get out of here. But one of them stood up and he said, Mr. Speaker, if it's not the end of the world and we adjourn, we shall appear to be fools. If it is the end of the world, I should choose to be found doing my duty. I move you, sir, that candles be brought. Because there's work to do. How do we want to be found? Panicking? Or just being faithful to the work that's set before us? Have you ever uh, invited company over to your house and, uh, and then you realize, okay, it's the day before and the house is a total mess? And uh, I'm all, I, like, this happens every time we invite company for, to our house. Sorry. Um, but, uh, and so, so we, we, pat, like we start cleaning, right? Like, we've got to get ready because the guests are coming tomorrow. And, you know, if, we're, if it's really a mess, we might get started the day before. But, you know, often it's a few hours before. And, uh, and so just try to clean as much as you can. And, you know, we work together uh, as a family, as husband and wife, and, and even now we're enlisting Juliet, who's only four and a half, will almost her to help too. But we work together probably better then than we do any other time. I mean, we just kind of get stuff done, right? And um, we work fast because there's pressure. And as it nears the time, you know, we're looking out the window. <laughs> Are they here yet? Are they here yet? And maybe the time comes and everything's ready, and so it's kind of, oh, where are they? 
And then imagine you get the phone call after everything's ready. We're really sorry. We can't make it. Can we reschedule? I don't know about you, but when that happens, I actually don't get mad that I spent all that time cleaning the house. Because, oh, isn't this nice? Like, in some ways, I think, oh, okay, great, they've canceled. I've now got a free night in a wonderfully clean house. <laughs> great. I mean, this is, I think, kind of what Jesus is talking about. He's coming back. So clean up. And, you know, and actually, you know, if he came back tonight, like, be ready. But if he doesn't come back tonight, it's great to be ready. Like, if he comes back in 10 years or 2,000 years, it, you're better off as a Christian if you've cleaned the house. Now, it's an okay analogy, um, but what... What is our work? Like, what actually has been left for us to do by Jesus? And, you know, in some cases, it is doing your job. I think the New England uh, legislature story is right. You know, those people had been elected, and that was their job, and that was their duty to, to follow through on their job. And I think it's the same for us. But there's also something more for followers of Jesus. What is our, our spiritual work? Like, what would be the equivalent of cleaning the house? in preparation for Jesus to come over. Well, I think, you know, the Bible gives us some, some pretty clear pointers. Right in Mark 12, uh, near the end of Mark 12, just a couple of chapters, or one chapter earlier, um, Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? And he tells them, essentially, love God and love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, that's the summary of the whole of the commandment. What's our spiritual work? Love God and love your neighbor. For centuries, Jewish people, and then for centuries, Christians, look to the Ten Commandments as this is our spiritual work. And as you read those Ten Commandments, some of them are hopefully pretty easy to keep, like don't murder anybody. Hopefully we can keep that. Others are a little harder to keep. And as Jesus is right, he puts the first one first, is love God. But we have a real problem keeping one of the commandments. And I want to talk about that one specifically, or mention that one specifically, because probably almost all of us break this every week. Keep the Sabbath. And we have warped views of what that is because it doesn't mean just don't do your job, like just don't do the job that you're paid to do. If you go far enough back, like it was any work. So that's not the day to be cleaning the house to get ready for Jesus. That, that would be the day of preparation. They had a day of preparation before the Sabbath in order to get ready so that you could have a day where you didn't work so meals were not cooked on the Sabbath. They were prepared the day before so that things could just be laid out on the Sabbath. 
Laundry was not done. And, and we use our days off from work to get a whole bunch of other stuff done because we don't have time in our week. And we've got to find a way to somehow start keeping that again. I'm not arguing for it's got to be this day of the week. I mean, we've all got work schedules are different now than they were. And, you know, some people are going to be nurses and have got to work on Sundays. And so I'm not arguing for that, but I am arguing that our pattern of life that's given by God is for us to have one out of seven days where we do no work. And that is time to be with family. That is time to be with God. That is time to reconnect to what is most important. And, and so I would challenge you in Advent to try to figure out, it, like, sometimes when we look at, oh, well, I'm just going to take a Sabbath every week forever. That, that can sometimes be hard. But why not say for the four weeks of Advent, in one of the busiest times of life leading up to Christmas, let's try to figure out how we're going to take a week a day every week, and, and not work, and not go shopping. Imagine if we could do that. If we could pause long enough to realize that God might be speaking and God might be working in our lives. we'll sometimes start to feel disconnected from God or from Jesus or from church and sometimes that happens when life is hard or when life is busy and actually sometimes it happens when life is easy and there seems to be no need for God and the worst thing we can do when that happens is to just go to sleep spiritually but that's what we want to or tend to do in those times When, when things go wrong in human relationships with a friend or a family member, and, and we feel sort of apart from them, normally the last thing we want to do is go and talk to them about it. And so we just stay away. And that just leads to greater isolation. We do the same thing with God. As we start to feel disconnected from Jesus and from God and from church, what we do is we stay away. And it makes things worse. It can be really easy when we feel away from God to just keep disengaging from God. And we don't want to work at it because it's just easier to let it go. And usually in the scriptures, this is talked about as hiding from God. When the relationship is not going the way the individual wants, that relationship hides and avoids the relationship. And it's actually foundational to our story as Christians. It's right in the Garden of Eden story. Adam and Eve eat from the tree, and they know they're not supposed to, and they know that's broken their relationship with God, and what's the first thing they do? They hide. They hide from God, somehow thinking, you know, God's not going to find us behind this bush. But, <laughs> but we do the same thing. As though God isn't going to find it. Well, I'm not going to show up at church for a little while, or I'm going to, you know, I haven't prayed in a while, and so instead of, we worry about that, and instead of just saying, well, okay, I'm going to take five minutes and pray then. We worry about it. We disengage. I haven't read my Bible in a while, and instead of feeling guilty about it, why not open up the Bible and read it for one minute? Because something about our humanity makes us act like Adam and Eve. Where we know it's not right between us and God, 
And so we try all kinds of things to hide in the bush. Jonah does the same thing, right? God tells him, deliver a prophetic message. Go into enemy, ter enemy territory to Nineveh. And it's kind of understandable. It's enemy territory after all. But what does Jonah do? He runs in the other direction. Well, God found him. Jesus' story of the prodigal son can be read this way, right? The prodigal son, I want my share of the inheritance so that I can run away from my, from my life. And run away from responsibility and my family. And, I, and then I've got freedom and I can do what I want. And what has to happen in his story? He has to hit absolute rock bottom eating pig's food before he realizes Maybe I can go back to my father and, and just ask to work as a slave in his household. And when he takes that first step, the father runs and embraces him and says, no, no, you're my son, and we are having a huge party because you are back. Now, Jesus in this text, in Mark 13, doesn't talk about this as hiding. He talks about it as, you know, you've got to do the opposite of that. You've got to keep awake. You've got to stay alert. Verse 35, therefore keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cock crow, or at dawn. And these, these four times are actually the times that uh, Jewish people would divide up the night into these four times. So evening, midnight, cock crow, and then dawn. They're all the, the four times of the night. But you'll actually find these four times uh, in the next chapter of Mark, uh, the next two chapters of Mark. And the next two chapters of Mark describe the passion of Jesus. And so the next time the word evening is mentioned is in the same sentence as Jesus when he's gathered around the table with his disciples and it says, it was evening, and Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Then midnight is mentioned a little farther on in Mark 14, where Jesus is in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, what does he say to his disciples? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Three times Jesus asks for that, and three times he comes back and finds his disciples asleep. One of you will betray me. Now you're not keeping awake. What happens when the rooster crows? Peter, the chief apostle, denies Jesus that even knows him three times. And you won't find the word dawn, but it's actually exactly the same word in Greek. You'll find the word morning. First thing in the morning, Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus' fate is sealed when there's a consultation between the elders, the scribes, and the council, and they decide to crucify him at that moment. And at that moment, Jesus is alone, and he says nothing in his defense, but there's no one else there to be. And by 9 o'clock in the morning, he was hanging on the cross. 
the work that Jesus has left us to do, it's not just Ten Commandments, it's not just love God and love your neighbor, it's allegiance to him. It's what none of these disciples did. He asked them to keep awake, and I don't know if they were doing end-time speculation, but he, he was talking about the next day. I'm not talking about another thousand years from now. I'm talking about today and tomorrow. That keeping awake, it, it means being allied to Jesus. That when someone asks you, do you know him? You say yes. Not like Peter. Our inclination is to shy away or to run away or to take the easier path and to kind of spiritually just fall asleep. It's like staying in bed. I don't want to get up today. I just want to stay in bed. And we do that with our spirituality. Letting our relationship with Jesus slip is really bad for us, and we know it, but it's actually even worse for people around us who don't know the depth of, of the love of God in Christ. Because when we let it slip, then they see it. And they think, yeah, that's what Christians are like. And I'm not talking about never struggling with issues. We're all going to struggle with aspects of faith and doubt. That's okay. What I'm talking about is this kind of lukewarmness toward Jesus. Because what will happen when someone we know actually does ask us something about the church or about God? Will we be prepared and will we engage in the conversation? Would we bring someone to church and then be open to talking to them about it over lunch? Would we do that if we ourselves felt just kind of so-so about all of it? Jesus asks us to watch, to keep awake, to stay vibrant and alive in our faith and spirituality because we do not know when he is coming. And we are simply sleepy Christians a lot of the time. It's not that we are it's not that we are looking busy it's that we are busy even too busy for God and eventually as the world creeps in Jesus and his love and his care somehow become irrelevant to us yet it's actually the most relevant thing in the world I mean sometimes people will say preachers job is actually to try to make this relevant I mean I, I don't know how it isn't relevant That God loves you so much that he gave his son for you that you can have a relationship with the creator and ruler of the universe and have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I don't know how that is irrelevant. Yet somehow it becomes irrelevant to us because we let other things creep in. And so this morning I'll, I'll ask you again what... Can you take Sabbath somehow? What, what is it that you need to take a break from in order to allow your life with Jesus to reawaken? What is it that you need to put on pause? Even just put on pause until January. What do you need to put on pause for a few weeks so that you can be more alert, more awake to Jesus in your life? He is coming. Be awake. Amen.